Hey, welcome back to The Prince, and thanks for joining us for this bonus episode. I'm Sulin Wong, and I've spent most of this year delving into Xi Jinping's life and his impact on China and the world. It's been like no other story I've ever worked on, and so I wanted to tell you a little bit about how I did it. This bonus episode is also very timely because the party congress in Beijing has just kicked off, and it's the most important event on China's political calendar. My colleague is here to help me discuss all of this, so let me introduce you to Alice Su. Hi. Alice is part of the Economist China team and the Brains Trust behind the prints and has been an amazing sounding board for me throughout this series. Thanks, Sulin. Um, so first of all, I want to say congratulations. Your podcast was amazing. Thank it, you. I had high expectations, but it surpassed them. I really liked how it was not only an explanation of Xi Jinping and his life, but also a story about what it's been like for ordinary people living in China in the last 10 years. Um, and surprisingly, I actually got a bit emotional in some parts, like the segment where you were talking about the Beijing Olympics in 2008, just really brought back for me kind of what it was like to be in China back then, you know, the hope that people felt for, for change and for a real open China, and also how much has changed in the last 10 years. I'm so glad so, that that um, really sort of moved you because it's something that I personally feel when I think back to the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and sort of my optimism, perhaps my naive optimism, mm -hmm. I still remember that feeling and I wanted to sort of recreate that in The Prince. Well, you, you tapped into it. I felt it. <laughs> so I'm excited to hear about, you know, just how you went about this project, you know, getting into the mind of Xi Jinping, especially when you couldn't go to China or, or go anywhere near Xi himself. Yeah, I mean, or even talk to people in China without putting them at huge risk. And in fact, there were lots of people outside of China who also didn't want to speak because they were worried about talking on a podcast about Xi Jinping. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> Yeah, I remember once when I was asked to write a profile of Xi Jinping and when I approached interviewees, it would always be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing a story about Chinese history, political history. And then like after we talked a bit, it would be like, so what do you think about the current leader? So, you know, <laughs> you don't say his name, just kind of like, uh, and they're like, what? him <laughs> and, and then you kind of gauge you know like are they are they willing to talk or not <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you first kind of a, as an opening question I wanted to ask you about the title of the series The Prince what does this mean I must say that we have to give credit to Sondre, one of our colleagues who is a data journalist at The Economist. He was the one who suggested we call it The Prince. And I think initially we were drawn to it for two reasons. One, it's a reference to the fact that Xi Jinping was born into Communist Party royalty and is himself a princeling. And then the mm. second allusion is to Machiavelli's famous text, The Prince, which is, you know, all about power and how to wield it. And it's sort of known for arguing that it's better to be feared than loved as a ruler. Mm. But as we made the series, I actually realised there are a couple of other meanings to the title. And so a third mm. meaning that I thought of was the fact that Xi Jinping really sees himself as a true inheritor of the communist revolution. And it's something that was really drilled into him and his brothers and sisters by his dad from when he was a kid. Xi Zhongshun, his dad, would sort of lecture him about the revolution, that 
Xi Jinping fought in and how Xi Jinping and his brothers and sisters would also be revolutionaries. So I think Xi Jinping sees himself as sort of an inheritor of Mao Zedong's fight for a new China and Xi Jinping sees his role as sort of making China even stronger. So there's this reference to like the Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones where there's this man (laughs) on a mission Mm -hmm. and part of like a, a bigger history. And then the fourth reference I thought of was the fact he's not actually at the peak of his power yet. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens mm. over the next few months and few years because, you know, I think a lot of us are expecting that he's going to become even more powerful during his third term. And so this title is a reference to the fact that Xi Jinping is not even yet at the peak of his power. Yeah, that's fascinating. So we can look forward to a sequel in 10 years, the king or, or the emperor. <laughs> so we're all really impressed by how much you did manage to get about Xi Jinping, given that you were reporting in an extremely political sensitive time, you were doing it from outside, um, and you did it with a time constraint, you know, you wanted to get this done before the party congress. Are are there some things that you were trying to get, but you couldn't get, you know, any unanswered questions that are out there? Oh my goodness, so many. I think like the first thing that I would want to say is I just feel like there's still so much we don't know Mm. about Xi Jinping. And what really struck me during the interviews was the number of times that all kinds of people we interviewed said that, you know, compared to previous Chinese leaders, the information out there, you know, that's publicly available, even accessible to, say, the U.S. government has really dried up under Xi Jinping. And I was struck when former U.S. government officials were saying that even the current U.S. administration struggles to find out information about Xi Jinping. So really, really basic questions like, what is Xi Jinping's daily routine? You know, what time does he wake up? Does he exercise? What's his favorite food? Like all of that, we just like, were not able to find out. But then on top of that, there were really, really important questions like, who influences Xi Jinping? How does he make decisions that really uh, impact the world and have huge implications for all of us that I just could not get to the bottom of. So they're some of the questions I would have loved to find out, but there are so many parts of his life that are like this. The other interesting thing is, you know, despite all we're saying about Xi's unknowability, there is a lot of Uh, propaganda around him. And there is this sort of narrative that's being pushed by state media, you know, about his youth, about the time he spent in Liangjiahe and the books that he read or, or the books that he's supposedly still reading today. What do you make of all of that? Yeah, there is so much party propaganda about his time in Liangjiahe. There's like a 45 episode TV series on it. Uh, <laughs> Wait, did you watch that? <laughs> I must admit I did not. I hope the podcast <laughs> series is not worse off for that. <laughs> But there's also a lot of party propaganda about all the books he read when he was living in a cave in Liangjiahe. Um, mm-hmm. That was when he was sent away from Beijing to learn from the farmers and, and work the land. But the thing is, it's just not really possible to verify if he read all those books. What we do know is that there wouldn't have been a lot else for him to do to pass the time. I mean, there wasn't even electricity in that village and he was living in incredibly simple, basic conditions. And Mm -hmm. there are accounts of other people's experiences as sent down youth during that period in Chinese history. And a lot of them talk about how they read a lot. But what is interesting is that among intellectual circles in China, Xi Jinping is seen as uneducated, 
because he missed out on a lot of his schooling due to the Cultural Revolution, as we sort of explored in episode two. And so he would have spent a lot more time studying Mao Zedong thought and Communist Party ideology than he would have spent studying chemical engineering, which was ostensibly the degree he has. Yeah, I think the other interesting part about that, it's like when when you talk to people from Xi's generation in China, some of them talk about how the people who went to college after the Cultural Revolution ended, it's like they had this whole deconstruction process, right, where suddenly they were starting to be able to access other texts and and read, you know, other ideas. And they kind of like wrestled and struggled with thinking, okay, everything I believed before and this worldview I had, it, it was wrong. <laughs> okay, I, I need to rebuild what I believe. And, you know, I've heard a lot of, yeah, just Chinese people from that generation talk about that. But then also to point out that Mr. C probably d- did not go through that process himself. He's kind of, you know, still reading within that upside down world and within that worldview. I think the different reactions Chinese of his generation had to their traumatic childhoods is really, really interesting and sort of illuminating. While there were many Chinese who sort of wanted nothing to do with the Communist Party and wanted to get away mm. from it, Xi Jinping obviously didn't have that reaction and he sort of doubled down on the party instead. Yeah. And just because we're talking about books, I always chuckle to myself when I read this, this line from state media about how, you know, C likes to read, you know, kind of Marxist classics and he likes to read about the economy and history, but he also apparently really likes Shakespeare. And I just remember this line from the state newspapers that said, you know, C has said that, you know, when he was young and when he was working in the, the poor yellow earth of northern Shanxi, he, he, he like stood there and he said to himself, to be or not to be. And then he decided that he would devote himself to the motherland and to the people. <laughs> and, and yeah, I actually think there is a line about that um, at the museum in Yangjia. I just think it's a poignant image. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny it's thing also, to imagine. It's, it's a really funny thing to imagine <laughs> compared to the candid interviews he's given about his time there where his like skin was swelling up with flea bites and he had to like sleep on a bed of insecticide and like he didn't have enough to eat and was like freezing and I'm trying to imagine that all (laughs) happening while he's you know wondering to be or not to be but it's interesting (laughs) you mentioned that you've been to the Liangjiaho Museum which is one thing I'm very envious of because while I was in China I never actually visited Liangjiaho what was it like? It's well obviously it's kind of like the embodiment of all the propaganda you see that, you know, it's, it's creating this historical narrative around Xi, but turned into this Disneyland site where you can visit. When I went, there were a lot of, a bunch of tour groups there, there and they were kind of like dressing up in Cultural Revolution era uniforms. There was a group of teachers from Guangdong and then they, you know, you can like go around from cave to cave and every cave has a little bag of flea medicine. <laughs> so like every cave you go, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There were fleas here. Um, and she suffered from the fleas. Um, and yeah, you just kind of, it's this chance for you to, I guess, enter that world and and experience it. But like I said, it's, it's very contrived and it's very, you feel like you're in an amusement park, <laughs> kind of like a party propaganda amusement park. Yeah, I know um, the I, feeling. I did, so many, I feel yeah. like there are so many sites in China where I was like, oh, this is like Communist Party Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the difficult thing, you know, like when I went, I think what a lot of journalists do like when they go there is they're trying to find kind of older people, elderly people who might have lived there in the village like in, in the time when she was there and, you know, to hopefully hear something, like hear something from someone who actually knew him when he was young. But it is also incredibly difficult to actually 
talk to any locals. So like when I was there, there were people following me around the whole time. And the only two people I did try to talk to, I started to approach some local villagers who were kind of um, selling souvenirs and selling snacks. And because this was 2020, so it was during COVID. Well, COVID is still going on in China, but um, it was COVID time. And we're starting to talk about how they were really struggling economically. And as soon as they started talking to me, these people who were following me like came up and glared at them and they stopped speaking. You know, it's just ironic because all those signs in Liang Jiahe and the caves, like they're about, oh, Xi Jinping has always cared so much about the people. He cared about the villagers. He's, you know, he's, he's a man of the, the masses. And, and so you would think like, well, yeah, so I'm here. I, I want to talk to the masses, to the villagers, to the ordinary people. Um, but there was just absolutely no chance to do that. Yeah, it's very revealing yeah. that the man of the people doesn't really want the people chatting to anyone, especially a journalist. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so we've talked a bit about books. Did you come across any movies that she likes? Yeah, so state media has published a list of movies that C's watched and some of C's uh, favorite American films, apparently. Uh, and it's kind of revealing. So apparently he really likes The Godfather, The Deer Hunter, Saving Private Ryan, and Mission Impossible. I'm not really sure what to make of that combination of Hollywood movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we talk about movies, I always think about this cable that came out from WikiLeaks, and it's from 2007, back when she reportedly had dinner with uh, the then U.S. ambassador to China, and he made this comment saying he really likes Hollywood movies about World War II, and apparently he said, quote, Hollywood makes these movies well, and such Hollywood movies are grand and truthful. Americans have a clear outlook on values and clearly demarcate between good and evil. In American movies, good usually prevails. And then he was very critical of a lot of Chinese movies, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and, and said, you know, they're all the same. They're just talking about bad things happening in, in imperial palaces. And, and he also said that Chinese movie makers are neglecting values they should promote. I do think that if you track what's been happening in the Chinese movie scene in the last few years, you can see that he clearly favors a sort of grand, heroic narrative, right, of good versus evil, and sometimes even these action-packed hero stories, but kind of in the, in a, well, you have to admit, a lot of the the American Hollywood movies are also a little bit nationalistic or, or patriotic, kind of like the American saves a day, right? So you do see that undersea Chinese movie makers are pushing out a lot of Chinese policemen saves a day, Chinese firefighters saves a day, like yeah. Chinese whoever saves a day. You just see that. Definitely. And I mean, the production value now is so high. I mean, these Chinese propaganda movies are often like very, very aesthetically beautiful and look yes. just like Hollywood blockbusters. So it, it does really feel like Chinese movie makers have heard the words of Xi Jinping and are sort of emulating the style of Hollywood movies. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's very hard to figure out what ordinary Chinese people think, um, which was sort of something we grappled with a lot making this series. But Mm -hmm. I do think a lot of these new Chinese propaganda movies are very sort of effective at evoking a sense of patriotism and nationalism like those American movies do among many Americans. Yeah, that's right. So let's move to some of the questions that we got from listeners um, we actually have a lot of comments about how great your mom was and the segment um, with her cooking rendang <laughs> and asking, why am I in this podcast? <laughs> I really like that segment too. 
it, it was really funny because she she did not understand what I was doing uh, when I was <laughs> home with her and and my dad in the kitchen with my recorder recording <laughs> her cooking. But then she did actually listen to the series when it came out. She's like, oh, I get it now. And then what's okay. really what's <laughs> really funny is that Adrice, our colleague and DC bureau chief, and for Economist podcast fans, he's one of the hosts of Checks and Balance. He actually messaged me after listening to The Prince and. Uh, Idris is a very good cook and so asked me for nice. my mom's recipe. Uh, but, but my mom, yeah, my Wait, mom. what is it? Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, mom knows I'm not a very good cook. Uh, and so she's always like trying to help me find shortcuts. And so actually mm. what she said was, uh, Sulin, supermarkets sell very good chicken rendang paste in a jar. And I suggest oh. you just buy that. Your rendang will basically turn out the same. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like shortcut for... Noob cooks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, so quite a few people are asking about how to pronounce Xi Jinping's name correctly and why it's being pronounced in so many different ways on the podcast. Can you kind of like give us the the ultimate guide to pronunciation? <laughs> you know, can you can you can you address this? I have seen lots of comments about this asking me how do you truly pronounce Xi Jinping's name? But in Chinese, XI is actually just C, like the ocean or A, B, C, D, like the letter C. So, yeah, I think there's lots of sort of mispronunciations in English, like Z mm-hmm. or she, <laughs> um, uh-huh. but it's actually, just think of the ocean. Yeah, well, kind of, right? Because it, it, it's not it's not like S. It is, a, it is like this other sound, right? Like, sh, like in between S and SH, right? It's not sh, it's, it's like, it's like she. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I do feel like for but, non-Chinese yeah. speakers, the easiest thing to remember is just like the letter C or the ocean, given yeah, um, kind of, yeah. the complexities. Xi, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping. Yeah. So, okay, moving on. <laughs> Here's another question that we got, and I'll just read it out. Uh, I'd like to know why the Chinese people and indeed the CCP tolerate the concentration of power and resurrection of personal worship by Xi. After all, wasn't that the exact formula for disaster under Mao? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's something that we thought a lot about making the series. But also, you know, I ask myself as a journalist, which is, you know, how popular is C really? And Mm. where does that come from? And how can we figure that out? And the Chinese government likes to point to this Harvard study that shows more than 95% of respondents in China were satisfied with their government. But You know, I've often wondered how those studies are conducted. Like if I were a Chinese farmer and some researcher from Harvard came to me in my village and was like, do you like Xi Jinping? Do you like the Chinese government? Like, I think I would probably just say yes. So one thing I thought a lot about making this series was how do ordinary Chinese people feel about Xi Jinping and how do we sort of capture the the diversity of views? And one thing I really wanted in the series was to make sure we centered Chinese voices as much as possible. That was obviously incredibly Mm. difficult because it was just too dangerous for most Chinese people to speak to us. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm looking back at this question and I I think it's kind of related to something like a a question I I also hear a lot from people who maybe aren't covering China or haven't been living in China. And it's this idea of like, why don't the Chinese people just rise up and, and get rid of this dictator, you know, or this 
oppressive government. And people who ask that kind of question, like, why don't the Chinese people just get rid of this leadership? They're assuming that the Chinese people want to get rid of it and that they're not happy with it, right? And part of the legitimacy of Xi and of the Communist Party is that Chinese people's lives have been improving. They've been getting wealthier. They've been seeing more opportunity for their children. And I think what's really changing now is that that is no longer guaranteed. My personal subjective, <laughs> um, admittedly subjective, but my feeling from roaming around China in the recent years of Xi Jinping is that overall mood is much more one of like pressure, <laughs> of high pressure and risk avoidance and fear that you're going to overstep a red line at any moment. It's more that than it is, you know, this kind of excited, like, yeah, you know, we're, we are strong and we love our leader. Like, I didn't see that. I agree yeah. with you completely. And I think yeah. one thing that has really, really changed in the time I've sort of been living in China and covering China is how much more sophisticated the machines of the party are. So mm -hmm. um, the censorship machine, the propaganda machine, the surveillance yeah. machine, coupled with, you know, repression and AI is making it even harder for people who are unhappy to voice their discontent mm -hmm. and, like, let alone stand up and rise up and overthrow the dictator. <laughs> And now in, in most of China, like you're just living with your red health code and like unable to go out in, in so many places, like get together and protest. Like you can't, like that's, just, it's just unthinkable. Yeah. I guess all of this sort of raises mm -hmm. this question that I've thought a lot about. And I know you and I have discussed previously and it's something we talk a lot about at The Economist, which is, you know, so what does this mean for the West? You know, given China has changed so mm -hmm. much under Xi Jinping, what do we do? You know, do we increasingly isolate China or do we try and engage? And that was actually another question that I got from a listener of The Prince who reached out to me over private message on Twitter, who was also wondering, you know, so now what? Like, what, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Now that we know the direction China's heading. It's a question that we're asking now because for such a long time, the American government, a lot of Western countries and a lot of some Chinese people and a lot of people, say, in Hong Kong and Taiwan, really did believe that, you know, engaging with China was a way to slowly change it, right? There was this idea, which, you know, looking back now, everyone says, oh, that was naive. Who would believe that? But but the thing is, a lot of people did believe that because they, they saw change. Um, so they believed that trading with China, helping China open up economically, that would inevitably lead to political change. And the idea is like, you know, China opens you know, more Chinese people start coming out, more foreigners start going in, new ideas come in. Yeah. And also, I think it was very convenient for people who wanted access to the Chinese market and knew that there was a <laughs> yeah. lot of money to be made in China. The sort of engagement argument was, was very convenient. But mm -hmm. obviously, under Xi Jinping, it's become clear that that's a much harder argument to hide behind now. Yeah, no. And in many ways, engagement, you know, strengthened China, right, allowed it to become an economic superpower. And, and now when you have leadership that wants to wield that power to you know, shape the world in, in the way that it likes, now everyone is asking, you know, oh, like, what, what should we do? And, and you know, this, this raises a lot of difficult moral and practical issues for us. Something that I have thought about just recently is, you know, I like my iPhone, which is reasonably affordable, <laughs> which is made in China. And if it wasn't made in China, if it were made somewhere else, it would probably be a lot more expensive. But Apple Podcasts doesn't carry the prints in China. Mm. Apple is engaging with the Chinese Communist Party, and that raises all kinds of difficult questions. So, I mean, I don't really know what the solution is. I, I don't really know how to think about this. Well, I, I think it's sometimes we address this question in a very black and white way. It's like, okay, 
China is doing atrocious things. Therefore, we should disengage from like everything that has to do with China and just like cut it off. And I agree that we should take a hard look at ourselves in Western countries in particular, but also just as global consumers um, anywhere in the world using using our phones or using any one of dozens of things we use every day that are from China. And we should think about, am I putting my money into, into something that is actively oppressing other people? But then at the same time, it, it's not so simple to just cut China off, right? It's like that, like that's a very simple idea, but it's not realistic because then how are you going to make your solar panels or your electric vehicles that, that you need? You know, um, how are you going to do the energy transition? How are you going to do all these all kinds of things? But governments are thinking, how do we reduce our weak spots? How do we reduce our our choke points? And then how do we increase our leverage? So I know I think this is all it's all really interesting and it's all playing out as we speak. And it's something that we'll keep covering every week. In the Economist. If you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, now might be the time to get one so you can follow all our coverage. The best offer is at economist.com slash Chinapod. So I am really curious, have you seen any reaction to the podcast inside China? So I must say that from the very beginning, I was very, very curious about this. So mm. as expected, the Prince is not available on podcast apps in China if you don't have a VPN, if you don't have a way of scaling the Great Firewall. But mm. I am hearing from my friends in China that there are at least some people have heard of it and are using VPNs and other ways to access it, which is really, really great. And I hope, you know, anyone in China who wants to listen is able to. Obviously, the sort of nationalist trolls, Alice, I know you and I are very mm. familiar with uh, <laughs> <laughs> with them, uh, we've unfortunately had many interactions or been attacked by them uh, for many, many stories we've written. But actually, it's also been kind of gratifying because we've had some really, really nice and positive responses from Chinese listeners. And one person said that they feel like they learned much more from the series than they learned from their Chinese history books. I think similar to you, a couple of Chinese people have said they were very moved by the ending because I guess, mm. you know, so many people sort of lived through COVID lockdowns in China. And remember, one person said they remember being locked down in Shanghai watching the video of people singing Tomorrow Will Be Better on the streets of Shanghai. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's not just about living through lockdown in Shanghai, right? It's about people in China have lived through the last 10 years. So they've also experienced the dramatic changes and the shrinking public space. And I, I think kind of your effort to to honor ordinary Chinese voices, it really came through. So I'm, I'm not surprised. And actually, I actually had a few messages from people in China saying the podcast is great. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't make it. But um, no, that we, was you all Sulin. <laughs> and one of the comments I really liked was this one. And I'll quote, I didn't want it to and to be honest, The Economist should turn this into a regular weekly show about PRC, politics, military, and economy. Aha! Uh -huh. And that is exactly what we're going to do with your podcast. <laughs> yes, that is right. Uh, so, I mean, you have set a very high bar for us to live up to, but we are starting a weekly podcast on China. It's coming out in November, and I will be co-hosting it with our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie. It's called Drum Tower, so look out for the trailer next week. And speaking of David Rennie, who is brilliant and, you know, all us China correspondents are constantly calling him to talk through story ideas and interview techniques, and he's also incredibly kind. I remember the night I had to very quickly leave Hong Kong, uh, he sent mm. me photos of his cats to try to make me feel better. Oh. 
Okay, Ollie and I forgot the other one's name. <laughs> he does love his cats a lot. Oh, yeah. um, but we also heard from him in episode seven and eight of The Prince, and we're bringing him back to dissect the party congress once it's over. So look out for the next bonus episode of The Prince coming at the end of October. <laughs> 